Rennie Harlan is one of the great action movie directors, and we're very lucky to have him as a guest in this episode, not just because of all the films he's done and the massive influence he's had on the genre and on filmmaking in general, but because he has some really great insights. He shares with us some lessons he learned the hard way early on, how he made the jump from literally nothing and living, you know, one paycheck to another barely able to eat, to becoming a major film director, getting offered and turning down huge projects. So what what made him walk away from certain opportunities that I didn't even know he ever had, and how he learned to get better and continues to learn to get better on set. What really captures Rennie Harlan's essence is his passion and love for doing this. He says many times how lucky he feels to be able to direct movies. And it shows in his work. And it shows in this interview. Well, first of all, it's really exciting to have you here. One of the great directors, action directors, uh, your prolific career. We're excited about The Misfits and definitely want to get into talking about that. But I kind of wanted to go back, as we often do on our podcast, and ask you a little bit about where your career began. What happened? What made you uh, start down the path of becoming a director? What was the first thing in your life, I guess, that made you think, this is what I want to do? This is what's going to happen? Wow. That's, a, that's a big question, but, uh, but I'll, try to, <laughs> I'll try to make my answer uh, concise. But, but it, it was really uh, started with my mom, who was a avid moviegoer and and my dad being a busy doctor well never had time to go to the movies with her so she started taking me since i was five years old and i saw all you know hitchcock movies and roman polanski movies and all kinds of thrillers and action movies and everything since i was really small and just fell in love with movies and that type of storytelling and then started making my own little home movies and drawing my my comic books and and writing my stories and 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 then at some point i realized that there was such a person as a director behind these movies and uh, and then it just became my obsession that that's that's what i want to do i want to tell stories i think I, to to a certain extent probably all directors share this which is that we we are kind of like kids who never grow up and uh, <laughs> and, and so we're just like making playthings like i was just I just finished shooting another movie, literally, uh, uh, day, yesterday. We were, doing oh, cool. this, we were doing this night shoot and this sort of a big war scene with, with people with machine guns and helicopters and explosions and, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And I was just having the best time of my life. I had been <laughs> up for like two days and two nights and, 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 and being tired was the last thing on my mind. And I, I, would, I just looked around and I said, who gets to do this stuff? This is just the greatest life. And, and so <laughs> I, I just wanted to make movies and, and it's never changed. I get the same thrill from it that I got when I was a kid. And so uh, I, I grew up in Finland, population 5 million, minuscule movie industry, especially in those days in the 70s. And so making movies in Finland was, was, was pretty much impossible. But I, were there uh, Finnish, I'm, I, I'm just curious, were there Finnish filmmakers or any kind of, like, any world around it? Or did you know yeah. other kids who were doing what you were doing? Like, you say you were making your own. Like, what was the, what was the, the culture 
for you like at that time? Because there was no internet, obviously, so you couldn't connect yeah. to people around the world doing no, it. No, couldn't, couldn't connect with people around the world or couldn't connect with anybody, in, even in Finland. So I, there were there were a handful of Finnish directors who made very small, very Finnish movies, which were financed by the government. So they, they were like very, very, very serious art. And they had to be mm-hmm. about issues in society and 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 just uh you know very heavy kind of serious things and and nobody went to see the finnish movies i mean literally <laughs> like people watched american movies like crazy but nobody would go and watch a finnish movie because it was like okay i already have all those problems in my life i don't want to go to a movie theater to be reminded me of, of, of them so uh the film industry was minimal and i didn't know anybody in, in the film business and it, it was just uh it was just a completely I got a chance to make a, a like an industrial video for one one actually it was for Shell Oil Company. They needed huh. a video about some 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 of their products, and somehow I got that gig. I did that, and as a result of that, uh, I got a gig to do some commercials, and I started my own company and started making commercials. And I did go to film school also, but soon soon, you know, again it was government financed film school that had no money to make movies. So all we did was take pictures with still cameras and, really? uh, and sit around and, and listen to some kind of a cynical, Lecture? Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, like a cynical want to be filmmaker, tell us about filmmaking without having really <laughs> made any movies. Cause it was so hard in Finland and there was no money and all that. So it was just kind of a very negative atmosphere I felt. And I felt like, huh. I can learn these things by reading books. I've already read these books, so I don't need to sit here and listen to somebody drone about it. And and like I said, there was no money to make movies actually. So it was just a so to me it was a waste of time. So I quit film school and I I I just started doing my own things and 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 I was So you were making uh, commercials though, basically. You yeah, got, you kind of got like started 20, making commercials. Yeah, I was like twenty years old and making commercials. And then, then got uh, uh, won some awards for those and, and got some attention. So then I was hired to do TV. So I did some TV, TV films. I did some documentaries. And to me, really, the best film school was making commercials because in 30 seconds, you had to tell a story about some lady who is using some special dishwashing liquid and it makes her <laughs> life better. So... In 30 seconds, you have to tell that story. You have to get the emotion across. You have to show the product. You have to film it. You have to edit it. You have to put music there. And it's a 30-second movie. So especially in those days, people were like the serious artistic people in the movie business in Finland, if you can call it a movie business. They they looked at commercial commercial filmmaking as something really bad and and kind of looked down at it like, oh, you're huh. doing commercials, you know, that's like, the yeah. I was, I was saying, well, I get to make, you know, 20 movies a year. You haven't made yeah. one movie in 20 years. <laughs> uh, so it might be only 30 seconds long or 45 seconds long, but they are movies and I'm learning all the time. And then, then yeah. I just, uh, you know, I always had the dream of, of getting into features and then miraculously with a, with a friend of mine, we were both like, 21, 22, something, we we wrote a script and we put all our savings together and used our credit cards and whatever we could to to make a movie. And completely miraculously, we made a feature in Finland 
with American actors and uh, made it in English. And it was a little, tiny little genre action movie. But it got released. It got sold all over the world in every movie-watching country in the world. And it, Was this uh, Born American? Born American. And it was released. Yeah, and that, in, you guys put your own money into it, and it ended yeah. up with international distribution. Absolutely. Like and, it was we, That's amazing. We got released in 1,200 theaters in America, and movie made made some money. Of course, we didn't make a sense because we made such sure. stupid deals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting the financing together. Uh, we didn't even have a lawyer. They asked, who's your lawyer? And we thought, are we in trouble? Is, is there some... <laughs> we were used to, in Finland, you just like shake hands. You don't make any, sign any papers. And is everybody too us, honest we, there? Is that... <laughs> they gave us a huge pile of papers to sign. And we just said like that. We didn't even read the contract. We said, oh, does the contract say that, you know, we are putting up half of the money and you are putting up half of the money. And then we, you know, share the movie 50-50 and something like that. They said, yeah, that's exactly what it says. I said, great. <laughs> of course, it said in you know lawyer language, it said that if the movie made billion dollars, we would maybe share you know like one cent. But uh, right. but anyhow, we we didn't. I didn't even get my directing salary because I had to give my directing salary salary as a guarantee to the lab to get the movie out out of the materials because we ran out of money. So wow. we didn't make a cent, but we got to make a movie, which was. Great. And, uh, and, and it then, put you on the map, right? Like yeah, it really well, did. Yeah. Uh, it, it put me on the map as a very, very tiny, tiny little dot on the very big map of the world. But, sure. But, yeah. but at least I did exist. And uh, it gave me the, the encouragement to actually to move to Los Angeles and to start seeking my, my opportunity. And it, it wasn't easy. And it took a few years. Of, of complete poverty and living in a in somebody's garage with no money, literally. And I you didn't money. know anybody, and you just moved to this country, right? So there's a lot of extremes. Yeah, I I knew nobody, and I literally, like, I didn't know where I was getting money to buy food. It was literally. That How did you fire. survive those years? Like, was it just courage in the? I I survived by by writing movie reviews to obscure little newspapers in Finland in some tiny little town of 7,000 people, huh. I would, their, their, their newspaper would have a, a movie review by me and I would make a you know, few bucks that way. And then, then literally there was a year, I think it was around 86 or 87, there was a year when my weekly budget was $5 a week. I had to survive wow. $5 a week to, to, buy the cheapest possible food and the most filling food I could find and, uh, and just uh, try to stay alive. And it was, it, was it was really particularly tough because I didn't have enough money to go, to go and see movies. So I couldn't mm. go to a movie theater because I didn't have enough money to pay for the ticket. So that was kind of like, it, I, I could live without food, but it was hard to live without movies. So people, people often say to me like, Things like, oh, you've been so lucky to get to make movies and, and this kind of stuff. And I, I, I say, you definitely need luck in life. It is a big part of, of, of things. But, but the luck doesn't just land on your lap when you're sitting on the sofa. You have to work very hard for it. And you have to create those opportunities, find your place in the, in the world, be hopefully in the right place at the right time, and make luck happen because otherwise nothing will happen. I can only imagine how hard it was and you persevered and like things turned around in a big way, but like 
what kept you motivated to, were you like, I'm gonna, how long am I going to give this? You know, like how long were you like, I'm going to. Very good question. And the answer is, uh, is simple. I was too embarrassed to go back to Finland because, uh, some, you know, some, sometimes yeah. some Finnish people, whether they are musicians or artists or of other kinds or business people, they've tried to leave Finland and go and do something else somewhere else. And there's a saying in Finland, like you, you come back with the return train, the train will, will turn and you will, you will be back. So there's a real sort of a sarcasm about uh, Finnish people who, who try to, you know, go and keep out. the tires in a, in a bigger world. And, and the attitude is like, yeah, yeah, you, you, you can, you can talk big, but you'll be back. And so nice. I love it. <laughs> I love that you were like, there's no way I'm coming no, back defeated. No, literally, <laughs> especially in the, in the tiny, tiny, tiny little movie world of, of Finland, where everybody yeah. knew each other. The fact that I left for America, everybody was literally laughing at me and, wow. and, uh, and shaking their heads. And it's sort of a sarcastic pity is what people were feeling for me. Wow. And I was so embarrassed about the idea of going back and admitting that they were right and I'm a failure that I literally said, I said to my mom when I was able to, to put enough coins together to call her, you know, maybe once in a couple of months, I could call a quick short call to her. I said, mom, I'm rather going to die here than come back and admit that I'm a failure for the rest of my life. And my wow. mom was beside herself and she was, uh, <laughs> she was just miserable. But I said, you know, that's, that's the truth. I cannot come back. So I had to thank all those sarcastic people who were laughing at me. I have to thank they them. Motivated they, you. they motivated yeah. me. They motivated me. Things turned around like Nightmare on Elm Street 4, right? And, and Prison. Those were the next features you did. And then Die Hard 2. Like, how do you go, like, you go from starving to, like, one of the biggest action movie sequels on the cusp of the explosion of action movies in this, in the, in the genre, really. Like, it was born. Yeah. Like, that's a huge shift that happens for you in, like, three yeah. years. Like, it was, uh, like, it was pretty in, in, insane how things went. And because I, I did Born American in Finland, then, then I had really, really, really tough times in, in Los Angeles. Then I got my next gig, which was a little horror film called Prison. And, right. uh, and that kind of went nowhere. Now it's become kind of a cult favorite for a lot of people. But at that point, it, it sort of went nowhere. But How did you uh, get that? Have being um, the heart, like starving? I, and All, like, all I had was Born American. And I, I would show that to anybody I could find. I literally knew nobody. And it was literally me going to the Yellow Pages and and going to P for P for producers or F for financing and just wow. cold calling people and going to their offices unannounced. I didn't know how you make an appointment and that you have to talk to some assistant uh, yeah. or some receptionist or something. I just went there and I said, hi, I'm a film director and here's my videotape of my movie. And could you get the famous producer who works here to watch it? Yeah. <laughs> and I just kept doing that and it went nowhere until miraculously somehow this producer, Irving Yablans, happened to see my movie and he had discovered John Carpenter, the director of yeah. Halloween. He produced Halloween. Right. So he had that feeling like, you know, yeah. sometimes young people who haven't done much could, could, 
be a, a surprise, positive surprise. So he gave me prison to to make, and uh, and that was my big chance. And uh, the, we we did prison. It it you know didn't like I said it didn't really go go much of anywhere. But now I had another thing that I could show people that and, and what I what my calling card was that I can do inventive, visually enticing stuff with very little money. Yeah, and that was a good thing. And so then when Nightmare on Elm Street four came up and they needed a director, I went after it like crazy. I didn't even have an agent at that point. I, I couldn't get anybody to take me on as a, as a client. But I just went there, and I went there six times just to talk to the head of the company, Bob Shea, who later on became a very close friend of mine. But hmm. but they, they just I was just so crazy in, in my passion that they yeah. they just they, they couldn't they couldn't sort of just uh, ignore it, and so I, uh, I miraculously, totally miraculously, I got that job. They, their only franchise, their big franchise, the whole company depended on Nightmare on Elm Street, and I got yeah. that. And miraculously, it worked out, and the movie became a big hit. And and even even for a fourth sequel to to get good reviews was unheard of. And it changed my life overnight. It literally opening weekend of Nine on Elm Street Four on Monday morning. My first phone call was Spielberg. Steven Spielberg called me and said, "I saw your movie. <laughs> I love it. I want to meet you." And wow. I made a, made a deal to develop a movie with him. And and all studios called. And and next movie I signed on to do at that point was Alien Three. And uh, oh was, wow, I didn't know about that. Yeah, I was supposed to do huh? Alien Three. And I worked on on the Fox lot for for several months on it, and and the, and obviously I was following in the footsteps of of Ridley Scott and Tim Cameron, and I yeah, some big like guys. This was these, these were some huge shoes to fill, and I wanted to do something spectacular, but then I we just had completely different ideas, the studio and I, about the direction of the movie and what it what the story should be and so on, and and then. I just had to follow my heart and take one of the biggest risks of my life, which was I quit Alien 3. And it's when you're, you know, in your 20s and you get a giant studio movie, you don't quit it yeah. you know, if you ever yeah. want to be heard of again. <laughs> but I just had to be honest to myself and I just had to say, this is, it's not going to work out and I'm going to look stupid. And ne- next to Ridley Scott and Tim Cameron, I'm going to look like an idiot. And I quit without any knowledge of any other job or any any hope in my life but i had to do it and it turned out to be a smart thing because uh, literally next day fox offered me another movie which was the adventures of fort Fairlane, and i took yeah. it and then in the middle of shooting that they were so happy with the results and everything that was happening that they offered me die hard too and then i i took that and started that almost immediately after i finished shooting fort Fairlane. so so then things just snowballed from there but but it was really uh the toughest toughest challenge of my whole life was to get the job to do nine on elm street and then the fact that that was a huge hit changed my life literally yeah it, it seems like you really highlighted in retelling it that it was your persistence and passion that you could do it in a visually exciting way cheap right was yeah, that that yeah. was what you were saying like i can do I'm passionate about this and I can do it this certain way. And then that's, yeah. I mean, I do like the, the boldness of like 
very few people ever have that experience where, you know, you're getting calls from Spielberg, everybody wants to work with you, and you get one of the biggest franchises in the world, and it's aliens, and it's this highly anticipated movie. And it's like, and you had the moment of saying, I don't think this is gonna go right for me. I need to make a different choice. Like that could have yeah. been that could have been suicide in a sense. Yeah. But it worked out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, was it just the creative of it? Was it like it's not gonna work the way I want it to? Yeah. I I presented them two scenarios what I thought the movie should be. We had now seen Alien and we had seen Aliens, and now this was Alien 3. I said, one scenario that I believe in is that if people now are flying to the planet that the aliens originally are from. It's like if you think of aliens uh, like ants, I want to go to the ant hill and find out what are they really? Why are yeah. they the way they are? Why are they doing what they are doing? Why are they so hideous? Or is it just their way of protecting their species or whatever it is? But I want this group of people go to the alien planet and find out. I, I thought that would be interesting. And then my other concept was that aliens come on Earth. And I said, the poster mm. is, you know, cornfield in, in corn, cornfield in middle America. At night, you see a little farmhouse on the side of the, the field. And then in the middle of the field, there are aliens going through the field. I said, yeah. <laughs> that, that to me is a hit film. And uh, yeah. studio said, no, aliens can't come on Earth. And no, we don't want to go to that. And so they, their concept was they wanted to do a prison spaceship and the aliens go on a prison spaceship. And I said, right. I, I think it's so wrong. It's like, who, who is going to care about prisoners? Let the aliens eat them. They're criminals. They're murderers. <laughs> rapists. I, I don't care about them. I can't relate to them. And the whole point is that you have to relate to these characters and feel for them. And they said, well, that's, that's what we want to do. And we, we kind of went back and forth for several months. Uh, me like trying to change their mind and they didn't and they made alien three on a prison ship and it ruined the whole franchise and it's no secret that i i know david fincher and and he's an amazing great filmmaker uh a genius but it almost ruined his career because it was his first feature he had only done yeah and music videos yeah he, he, he took on alien three it was a disaster it it, it ruined the franchise for well, the franchise yeah. for years and, you were, uh, your instincts were correct, and I think yeah. he just wasn't in a position. You were sort of in a, a little further down the road. Yeah. Where you were in a position to say, uh, you know, I can take a chance here, and he wasn't. And and it seems yeah. in everything he says that he sort of regrets it. You know. Yeah, and then he he was then his lucky break was then that there was a little you know thriller at New Line uh, called Seven, and, uh, <laughs> and they, they liked his visual style. So despite the failure of Alien Three, they said, well. What do we have to lose? It's a it's a it's a pretty cheap movie. It's a little movie. <laughs> At least he'll make it look good. And right. uh, his genius that that made that movie a classic. Going back to you, you went from so from Die Hard Two, which was a huge another huge sequel success, and then like I'm just I know I want to get to Misfits in a second, but like there's like a trio almost of Cliffhanger, Cutthroat Island, Long Kiss Goodnight that are all great. And they're all original. 
and original kind of action, like you went away from the sequel, like you had done a bunch yeah. of sequels, but those were all new. And I know they all, you had to put a lot on the line, particularly Cutthroat Island, but it seems like at that point you had become accustomed to that. Like that's kind of where you started, right? Like I'm going to bet big on myself here. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly, you know, wasn't always easy and some things worked out better than others, but you just have to go into it with your heart and your passion and believe in it. Uh, uh, thousand percent and then movie guards will ultimately decide and more than anything the audience will decide what they want to what they want to watch but uh what i think is also amazing about those three movies is that whatever the receptions were at the time and they varied of the three of them but they're all kind of considered landmark like they're considered important movies to the genre at this point like everybody looks back at them and sees them as like oh you gotta like long kiss goodnight is like great action movie and cliffhanger yeah. is a loved action movie and i feel like you mentioned how you were shooting recently and you said something like i love that i get to do this i feel like all those movies they convey that there's a real joy in the in what you get to do like in the way that you approach it is that how you when you're when you're picking a project or developing something do you look at it like i want to have fun i want this to be yeah. a fun movie yeah definitely and whether whether it's comedic or it's a thriller or Whatever the genre is, it's I. That's exactly what I think. It's it's, and you know, making a thriller, it's 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 kind of more serious than when you're making a comedy. You get to get to laugh, but the fun fun is the right word. It it is so much fun. Whether it's an emotional scene or dramatic scene or scary scene or funny scene, it's just so much fun to put together and uh, going to the set and having all those great people around you, the the crew and the cast, and everybody's there just to make this vision become reality. It's, it is the highest honor and pleasure and funnest thing in the, in the world. Yeah. And I, I, all, that's all I could think when I was watching Misfits was I was like, this is, they're having so much fun doing this. It reminded me to go back to, you know, the, the nineties era. It reminded me a little bit of the rock kind of felt like a continuation yeah. of a bond with a Bond star yeah. and it had this just fun, like we're going to go all around the world. There's, it's got heist, it's got action. But I guess my question is the technology has changed a lot since you started. So when you're shooting a movie like Misfits, how do you make your decisions as a director with so much more that you can do through CG? I mean, when you started, you weren't, there weren't the same possibilities. Nothing was digital. There was not the same yeah. VFX stuff. It was practical. Like, how does it change your approach? Yeah, it's, uh, in, in, a, in a way, it's, of course, a, a, um, a benefit that sky's the limit now. But at the same time, I, I feel like we've lost something with the certain loss of reality. Uh, in, in earlier times, you know, it was the actors that have to do the stuff and then stuntmen doing the, the dangerous things mm-hmm. now now you have digi-doubles and things like that like an entire car chase might be digitally created the audience doesn't even realize it and and you know people are flying around and 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 uh, smacking <laughs> things and they are they are they are all digital it's a cartoon so uh so of course it gives you more opportunities but it also to me it's taken something away and i i think the audience to a certain extent can can tell the difference and i think they appreciate yeah. it when they feel like it's real real sweat and tears that went into making something and i certainly like doing that and and that way in in in, in the case of uh, the misfits for example it's there's there's hardly anything digital in it it's it's pretty much all done 
for real. And and uh, oh, really? Yeah, That's cool. I, I did. I so yeah, because like I I would agree. You can't always tell, but I think subconsciously you can tell when you're looking at basically a yeah. cartoon. How yeah. do you when you go into it? Like, how do you make sure that you keep it grounded? You just decide I'm going to do a certain amount of this practical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like I, I try to do everything practical, and then if it's if it's ridiculous because of cost reasons or something like that, then you then you try to use the the tools in a in a smart way, and and of course there's a there's a certain joy to that too, but definitely uh, I I try to I try to keep it grounded. I there's a there's a lesson I I learned, for example, when I was doing Cliffhanger, there was one scene that where where Stallone. To put it bluntly, he, he pretty much jumps <laughs> from one m- mountain face to another. And, yeah. uh, and it was a pretty spectacular stunt. And I thought it was going to be one of the key stunts in the movie and an amazing thing. When we test screened the movie, the audience was loving the movie. They were applauding and they were hooting and hollering and, and enjoying the movie. <laughs> Until that scene happened, and all of a sudden you just could feel the air let out of the room and and. Like we could totally feel it. And we were just mystified that what the hell is this? And then when we talked to the focus group after that and and looked at the cards that people had filled, it was crystal clear. We had succeeded so well in the movie with audience believing that Sylvester Stallone is on this mountain and this character is doing these things and he's human. And then when he did this thing, which I thought, oh, what a great stunt, the audience felt completely cheated and they felt like like the they had invested in this character and now the that trust that we had built between the audience and the character had been broken and now all bets were off okay well that character is not really real he can do anything he can jump from one mountain oh, to another wow. so why doesn't he start, start flying so so i learned the lesson is that you 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 have to establish the ground rules with the audience and then you have to stick to them and if you cheat the, you will lose the audience that's amazing and and you learned it by listening to the basically the reactions from yeah. audiences and test screenings yeah and what we, were, then we cut that whole expensive big stunt we cut it out of the movie and we had to construct another way how we get from one mountain to another wow and, and we found a way to do so it so he but, was like too it's so he was basically became too powerful essentially yeah. like yeah, it was exactly. like they bought his humanity and his vulnerability yes. until that moment yeah, that's something i i yeah. i think that with all these like you were saying all the cartoons the cg like i think the stakes vanish sometimes because you're like well this guy this isn't a real person and they're exactly. in a super suit they could do whatever they want exactly <laughs> yeah that's amazing and so and then going forward you just kind of kept in mind like i have to I yeah. have to stick to the ground rules. I always get that in mind. Always that you, yeah. you you can't betray the audience. The audience, you're building every shot, every scene, every character moment. You're building trust with the audience, and it's oh. like a bank account. And you're you're <laughs> you're depositing with every scene. You're depositing in that bank account, and you can't rob that account by robbing the trust. That's uh, that's great. That's just great advice. I actually usually wrap up by asking people if they have advice to filmmakers starting out. But that advice I like so much. There I don't want to ask because it's so it's so true. People so are so quick to violate that. And I also think the other side to that lesson is that even if it was the most expensive thing and you loved it when you did it, 
you might have to just cut it, right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> How often does that happen? I mean, is that a con- like you find yourself like, oh man, that was so great, but we just got to cut it. It happens. It happens. It's I call it killing your darlings. And and I've learned, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was a typical director who was in love with my shots and complicated shots that I had created. And and no matter what, I would want to keep some shots just because so much work went into it. And it's such a fancy shot. And I thought my filmmaker colleagues will look at it and say like, wow, what a shot. But I'm nowadays, I'm like, no shot for me is is worth, you know, having just because because it's beautiful. It's if it doesn't tell the story, if it doesn't advance the story and support the characters, then it's going to go. So you you uh, you learn to be healthy about that kind of stuff. Don't rob the bank. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically, yeah, never rob the bank. Well, yeah. we have to wrap up, but thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank I'm excited you, about the movie and it was great That's to great. have you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Ray Harlan for being on the podcast. It was really fun to talk to him. I really enjoyed his uh, insights into things, particularly his wherewithal when things weren't looking good, his desire to prove the doubters wrong, but also his lesson, establishing ground rules. Don't rob the bank. These are great things for anybody at any level. Thanks again. Check out The Misfits. It's in theaters now. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Send us questions for our weekly show, which drops every Thursday morning. And let us know what you think of our guests. Our guest interviews drop every Tuesday. We are very excited about Black Magic Week, which is coming up at the end of this month. So be sure to check it out on the website, in the podcast, on YouTube, all kinds of places.